Father, thank you for this day, a day in which we can rest. We can rest in your promises. We can rest in what you have accomplished for us in Christ and in the promises of what you will accomplish. And so, Lord, as we come to your word, we pray that it would do its work in us, do your work in us, recognizing that it has as much authority over our lives as you do because it is your word, your holy, inerrant, infallible, all-authoritative word. So may we be taught. May we receive it with joyful submission in order that Christ would be glorified in our lives. In his name we pray. Amen. So if you have your Bible with you, please turn to uh, the book of John, the gospel according to John chapter 1. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 35 to 42 today. Uh, John chapter 1, verses 35 to 42. Um, as you're getting there, you know, if you know me, you know that I don't watch a lot of movies. Uh, and, and not only do I not watch a lot of movies, but I even more rarely recommend any movies or, or TV shows, especially these days. There's just there's a lot of garbage. There's a lot of stuff that uh, you know just doesn't need to be coming into our minds. But there was a movie that was produced in the 1960s that you can actually find online uh, called The Gospel Blimp. The Gospel Blimp. And I would wholeheartedly uh, endorse this movie. I, I would commend it to you with gladness and without hesitation. It's uh, it's kind of a playful movie. If you know how sixty movies in the sixties were, um, it's a playful movie. But at the same time, it, it does make a very serious point. Uh, it starts out with a group of Christian couples who are having fellowship together on their back porch, on on one couple's back porch, and they look over and they see the neighbors drinking beer and immediately realize these people aren't Christians. Um, obviously, right? I mean, that's that are face cards, you know, but it was beer in this case. Um, and I say that playfully. Uh, but what they do is they, they start talking and, and thinking, you know, how can we reach these people with the gospel? And while they're talking, a blimp flies overhead. So they get this amazing idea that they will, uh, that they'll get a blimp uh, and attach a sign to the back of the blimp that would share the gospel with their next door neighbors. So, uh, so they share their idea with all their friends, they raise money, and they, they get a blimp. Uh, before they're even able to put the blimp into the sky, they incorporate in order to protect themselves, financially that is. Uh, they develop a board of directors, they have a, you know, a, a bunch of meetings to figure out the best way to do it. Um, the, the, first, uh, the first idea is they'll put a sign behind the blimp. But as the blimp goes up, carrying the sign behind it, nobody's looking up, and eventually the blimp just crashes. Uh, so their next idea is that they'll, they'll put the blimp up in the sky, they'll roll up uh, these gospel tracts in cellophane, in colorful cellophane, and they'll drop it from the sky. But people just end up wondering why things are falling from the sky. Uh, one guy has one of them fall in his drink as he's you know at a restaurant. Uh, so, so people, again, don't even notice it. They just throw them away without unwrapping the gospel tracts. Then they try playing, I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart uh, fr from, from a loudspeaker up on the blimp, but even the dogs in the neighborhood are going crazy because it's so loud and so bad. So eventually, George, who is the man whose neighbors they initially wanted to reach, George ends up leaving 
the board, uh, and the board members are really worried about George because he's been seen hanging out with his neighbor who drinks beer. Uh, In the end, though, the neighbors are actually won to Christ by the loving witness of George and his wife, and it turns out they actually hated the blimp and everything about the blimp. And the movie ends with one of the guys on the board extending an invitation to this neighbor to to join him over the weekend in working on the blimp. And he tells the board member in response that he and George instead are going bowling with an unconverted neighbor across the street. Uh, But the movie, which is about 40 minutes long, ends with this message uh, in, in writing. It says, for the best way to reach your neighbor, try talking to him. It's so simple, isn't it? I mean, 40 minutes to get to that point, but what you see is it it illustrates how complicated we can make things, especially evangelism. We can make it just so complicated. You know, some people are convinced that if we want to reach the world, uh, we need to do silly things like put blimps in the sky. Uh, Some people, or or billboards, Uh, some people are convinced that we need to be out there open air preaching. Some people are convinced that we need to be developing friendships for the sake of sharing the gospel with those people. Uh, Some people are convinced that we just need to be inviting people to church. And actually, I'm in full agreement with all of them. Uh, Not that we need to each be engaged in all of them at the same time, but everyone who is a Christian needs to be witnessing. Everyone who's a Christian needs to be evangelizing in one way or another. See, as people who believe what the Bible says, and we we do believe what the Bible says, right? As people who believe what the Bible says, we believe that there is only one way for a person to be reconciled to God, and that is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, right? I mean, isn't that what we believe? And we also realize that nobody figures that out on their own through pure reason. Nobody reasons their way to faith. If they could, we wouldn't need to preach. If they could, we wouldn't need to evangelize. But people don't figure it out for themselves through reason, and so we have to see it as our personal responsibility and corporate responsibility to impart that information, that information of how a person is reconciled to God, to them. But it doesn't need to be complicated. It doesn't need to be complicated. And it works so much just like every other thing in life. The more complicated you make it, the less likely you are to do it. And the less likely you are to succeed when you do do it. John the Baptist was a great, great evangelist. You could argue that he was among the greatest evangelists. He just went straight to the point, didn't he? Last week in the passage that we looked at, in the previous passage we saw that he simply declared as Jesus was walking by, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's it. That's his line. That's his evangelistic line that he throws out there. It's a statement that is just so profoundly simple, and yet it is so overflowing, so filled with a biblical theology of salvation and atonement that nobody could miss the implications of it. So why did John do that? Why did John evangelize, knowing that it could, and eventually would, cost him everything, including his own life? I'll give you two good reasons that I think he did it. Number one, 
he loved God. He loved God. And number two, because he loved his neighbor. He loved his God, loved his neighbor. And of course, he didn't do either, either of those things perfectly, just as you and I will never do those things perfectly, on this side of glory anyway. But he imperfectly loved God and loved his neighbor, and that was what drove him to evangelize. And, and with us, that's exactly what happens as well. A love for God plus a love for our neighbor drives us to evangelize. See, where there's no evangelism, one of those two things is necessarily missing. Either love for God or love for neighbor. And so we have to understand that if we love God, we will want to share what God has done on behalf of sinners. And if we love our neighbor, we will want the best for them, which is for them to be reconciled to God, for them to be saved And if anyone is going to be saved by Jesus, it's going to happen because somebody, somewhere, loved their neighbor enough to share the good news with them. And that's the point, that's the thesis of today's passage. If anyone is going to be saved by Jesus, it's going to be because somebody loved them enough and was thus willing to preach the gospel to them. So let's start with verses 35 and 36 of John chapter 1, if you've got your Bibles open. uh, Chapter uh, 1, verses 35 and 36. We read, Again the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Let's just stop there for now. Let's remember, as we're coming into this passage, let's remember that the gospel according to John is an evangelistic book. That is the purpose that John wrote this book. He wrote this book so that people who read it will believe, and by believing will have eternal life in Christ. And John the author knows that this requires an imparting of information. More specifically, it involves witnessing. It involves witnessing, and he starts this part of the story, the part of the story in which Jesus is is going to be introduced with an account of John the Baptist acting as an evangelist. And this is just such simple evangelism. Look look at what he says. It's not complicated at all, and yet it resounds so deeply with a biblical theology of salvation. He says, behold the Lamb of God. How complicated is that to say? How complicated is that to understand? It's a little bit more complicated to understand, but to say it and to get people thinking, that's that's not difficult. I mean, if you think about it, actually, behold, the Lamb of God, uh, that is actually the point of all good preaching. Every good sermon, that is the gist of of it, uh, that you would set your gaze, that you would set your hearts and your desires, your focus, your attention, and all of your affections upon Him, upon Christ, upon the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In fact, you could argue that every single passage in Scripture points to that end. It was the aim of Moses. It was the aim of all the prophets. It was the aim of all the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. It was the aim of John. It was the, the aim of Paul and all the apostles who wrote and, and whose writings are collected in the New Testament. This is all what they're trying to say. This is the gist of, of everything that they're saying. Behold the Lamb of God. 
Look to Christ. Look to the Messiah. Now you might say, and this is, this is a good question, you might say, well, what do you do with a passage like, you know, the, the verse where it tells us that Esau's hair is red? How, how does that point to, to Christ? And I would say it doesn't directly, but if you look at that detail like a knot on a piece of wood, a beam that leads to the apex of the ceiling, which is where Christ is, it's the same thing. It's the same way. it's, It's not the beam itself, but it's part of the beam that leads to Christ. So the goal of any and all good preaching is to point the listener to Christ, whether it's me doing it up here or whether it's you or me doing it out there evangelizing. It's always to point the listener to Christ. And the goal of them listening should be what? To believe. To follow Jesus with more devotion, with more purity of heart, with a deeper commitment to acting in obedience to Him, to growing closer in our walk with Him. And that's exactly what John the Baptist is aiming for here when he says this. That's what he wants for his listeners. We read that this happens on the next day. Now, if you scan through chapter 1, you'll see that we see these words over and over again. The next day, the next day, the next day. Uh, This is the third time that we see it. Uh, Again, John is leading up to, he's going through the seven days that lead up to Jesus' public ministry, which, again, is kind of a parallel with the seven days of creation in Genesis. On the first day, you remember, John the Baptist was approached and kind of interrogated uh, by the priests and Levites who had been sent by the Pharisees to figure out exactly what he was doing out there in the wilderness. On the second day, John the Baptist proclaimed, uh, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world as Jesus walked by, uh, which was uh, followed by his own personal uh, testimony, his eyewitness testimony of what he had seen when he baptized Jesus in the Jordan River 40 days earlier. So this is day three. We're on day three here. Once again, John, John the Baptist sees Jesus and he repeats the words that he had spoken on the second day. Now, we could talk all day about the purpose of, uh, of using repetition, um, but I, I think we all understand from our own daily experiences that repetition is very important both for learning and for persuasion. Uh, that's why advertisers, you, you, you know, you don't see a commercial just one time and then it's gone. It never comes back un- unless there's some kind of problem with the commercial. No, when you, when you see a commercial, you realize you've, you've probably seen it 15 times before. You just didn't take note of it. You just didn't notice it. Uh, but don't you think that corporations and and advertisers spend all kinds of money doing research, figuring out how many times you need to see a commercial before you start to notice, how many times you need to see a commercial before you're likely to consider being a customer. Of course they do, but it's the same with any information. Repetition drives it home for us, for better or for worse. Now, what happened on the previous day? the second day leading up to Jesus' ministry, when John spoke these words, when he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What happened? Nothing. As far as we know, nothing happened, apparently. At least we're not told that anything specific happened. We're not told about anybody responding or reacting or doing anything about it or even taking notice of it. But today, the third day, is a new day. 
And I point this out as something of a reminder that if you want to share the gospel, and you should share the gospel, but if, if you're going to share the gospel with, with family or friends or, or whoever, it helps if you don't approach it with a one-and-done type of mentality. You know what I mean? Like, uh, like you get the idea that, okay, if I, just, if I just say it one time, I never have to say it again. That's not, it, God can use that, of course, but a person is going to notice as it's repeated. They're going to start thinking about it as it gets repeated. So it's helpful if we don't approach evangelism with a one-and-done mentality. Don't look at it like you can, you can just witness and then never say anything about Jesus ever again in that person's presence. So the first time, on day two, there, there were apparently no results. But this time we do see some results. Let's look at verses 37 to 39. We read, The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. So we're told that two disciples had heard John the Baptist speak when John said, uh, Behold, the Lamb of God. Uh, we don't know exactly what that means. We don't know if that means that there was nobody else around except John the Baptist and, and these two and, and, and Jesus, uh, but only two apparently heard, and they got up, and they followed Jesus. You know, who are they? Well, we're told the name of one of them, but not the second. We're, we're told the name of, of one of them, that's Andrew. The other one goes unnamed, and that almost definitely means that we're talking about John the author himself. John the author, John the apostle, John the disciple, John the one whom Jesus loved. Now, if you wonder why he wouldn't just come out and say it, why he wouldn't just say, uh, and, and I was there, why he wouldn't just use his name there, remember that this is how he is throughout the book. He never, ever uses his name because he never, ever draws attention to himself. He normally refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. In, in this case, he, he doesn't refer to himself at all. Uh, if this is him... And, and I'd say it's almost certainly him, given his style and, and his, his tendency to, uh, to, to deflect any attention that, that he might get for himself. If this is him, it would seem that the absence of his name is sort of John's way of making sure that our attention stays focused on Jesus rather than on John. So in other words, that's to say the omission of his own name looks like it is probably John the Apostle's way of saying, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So this is actually one of the keys to evangelizing, by the way. We see John the Baptist doing it. Now we see John the author, the Apostle, uh, doing it. What is it? They're not drawing attention to themselves. They're deflecting any and all attention to Christ. They're not making it all about them. See, if, if you make evangelism all about you, about you know, maybe winning an argument, um, or, or even about you know, having a, a notch in your belt in heaven because you've won a soul, uh, you know, that, that's, that's not the right motivation. That, doesn't, that actually gets in the way of successful evangelism. Again, not that God can't use a flawed evangelistic uh, testimony, a flawed witness. Of course he can. He can use rocks. 
if he wants to. He could use a donkey if, if he wants to. But why throw an obstacle? Why throw a distraction, our, ourselves, uh, into the list of things that are holding a person back from coming to Christ? Evangelism needs to be selfless. It can't be about us. It's something where we have to lay our, our pride aside. It may cost us. It, it, it requires that we approach it very humbly. But that's one of the keys to evangelism. And so one of the beautiful things that we see emerging in the text here is a pattern for witnessing in which the person bearing testimony, the person who's witnessing, doesn't seek any personal gain for themselves. Like John the Baptist, what we see is the, the, the people who follow after him and who follow in this pattern, that they have the same pattern that John the Baptist has. Remember what John the Apostle told us about John the Baptist earlier in the chapter? That he knew that he himself was not the light. He came to uh, bear witness to the light in order that, number three, uh, people would believe. And this is the same pattern that we see in the people that follow after him. They know that they're not the light. They know that they're not their own Savior. They bear verbal testimony to Jesus and they do so in order that those who are listening or, or reading might believe in Jesus and thereby find eternal life. So the result of John the Baptist's witness here is that two disciples, Andrew and presumably John the Apostle, these two disciples get up and they follow Jesus. And so immediately I think we're supposed to see that to be a Christian means to follow Jesus. Why are they following Jesus? It, it doesn't say that they, they walked with Jesus. It says they followed Jesus. Why, why aren't they walking with him? I mean, that's what we do in our culture, right? If, if you want to be with somebody, you walk beside them. But not in that culture. In, in that culture, you walked behind your teacher, behind your, your rabbi, uh, following after them in order that you can learn everything about them in order that you can become like them. And so they follow after him in order that they could become like him, which is the goal of sanctification, by the way, which is what the whole Christian life is about. And as they do, he, he, he turns to them and he asks them a question. What do you seek? What do you seek? What a penetrating question. Open-ended. It's not a yes or no question. But it's a question that probes the depths of their hearts. It's a question that probes their motivation. Think about it. What do you seek? I mean, people seek all kinds of things. If you asked a room full of people, what do you seek? You would probably get a different answer from each person, although there'd be some overlap, there'd be some, some similarities, sure, but people seek all kinds of things. Uh, are, 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 these, are these two disciples seeking some kind of personal gain? Is it going to be all about them? I mean, throughout his ministry, Jesus makes it very clear that following him requires selfless devotion, that there's a cost to following Jesus. Mark 8.34, Jesus says, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
Mark 10, 21, Jesus is, is approached by the, the rich young ruler who, who loves all of his possessions. He loves all of his stuff more than he wants to follow Jesus. And so Jesus instructs him to cast his idols away first, saying to him, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. And what happens? The rich young man walks away poor or walks away sad because he realizes he's not willing to be poor to follow Jesus. Not at that point. The argument can be made that that was Mark. I think it probably was, but we'll save that for another time. But in the moment, he went away sad because he wasn't willing to cast his idols away. And so he couldn't follow Jesus. Luke 9, 16, a man asks Jesus, I I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Luke 14, 26, he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You know, I don't, I don't know where, where this, this free grace movement gets the idea of easy, uh, easy believism, this idea that you, know, you can make a profession in Christ and not be changed and, and it'll cost you absolutely nothing and, and you can consider yourself you know, good to go. That's not the gospel that Jesus preached. He told the parable of counting the cost. There's a cost to following Jesus. And so the question, what do you seek? Is Jesus' way of just cutting to the chase. Forcing Andrew and and John, presumably, to examine themselves, to examine their motivations, to examine their desires and their aspirations in following after Jesus. And as we see this, as we, as we reflect on this, it gives us a good reason to pause and reflect and to ask ourselves the very same question. What do you seek? Let me ask you this. Why are you in church this morning? Is it because you feel like you've got some kind of obligation to, to uh, your family? Is it because you feel like, well, this is a good time to, to hang out with friends? Well, why are you here? Why would you want to follow after Jesus? What do you seek? What might you long for? What might you desire more than Jesus? Are you seeking money? You think that if you go to church that God will bless you and give you money? Power, maybe? If you think that maybe if, if, if God will, will just, uh, if, if you'll come to church, that God will, will grant you favor through the week, uh, and, and so you'll have power. What about social reform? Are you here for social reform? Are, are, you, are you simply seeking to get away from how hard life can be? I mean, why are you here? What do you seek? And because if any of these things is your answer, I can guarantee you, you are going to be terribly disappointed in Jesus. You're going to be terribly disappointed in, in what you find because what you're seeking is not found in him. You know, even if it's, even if it's for relief from life's trials and, and difficulties, he doesn't necessarily lead us away from trials and difficulties. Sometimes he leads us into them so that we'll learn to more fully trust in him. There's a process of refinement that happens in a person when God brings a person through a difficult time in life and they learn to lean on him more fully. You know, it's quite true that 
following Jesus will, uh, will, will grant you blessings. But the blessings that are found in Him, that are guaranteed to be found in Him, are spiritual. They are not material. He doesn't guarantee that you'll be materially rich. He doesn't promise that you'll be poor either, by the way. What He does promise is that whatever your condition in life is, whatever your lot in life is, A, He's sovereign over it. B, that falls under His sovereign lordship. In other words, uh, our obedience to Him uh, is required with those things. C, He expects you to be wise with what you have, uh, whether that's much or little, in order that D, you would use what you have in accordance with God's will for the glory of God. This is what we would call a biblical definition or a biblical theology of stewardship. Taking care of all that we have, bringing it all under the lordship of Christ, all into obedience to Christ in order that he would be glorified in the way that we use and possess our things, whatever it is that we have, whether it's much or little. So what do you seek in following Jesus? And does it need to be put back in its place? Has it become too high of a priority in your life? And it needs to be put back down? Or is it maybe even an idol that needs to be cast away? You see what this all has to do with evangelism, by the way? Maybe you haven't made the connection. Let me, let me help you. It has everything to do with evangelism. Because following Jesus has everything to do with possessing and growing in our love for God and in our willingness to submit to Him in obedience. And if there is anything in the entire Christian life that tests our obedience to Christ, it's evangelism. Anybody agree? It's evangelism. That's the one thing that tests our obedience more than anything else. So it's important, it is vitally important to be following Jesus with the right motivations. To be following Jesus for the right reason. And hence the question that is set before the two disciples and before us. What do you seek? And the two respond, actually, kind of without answering. They, they answer the question with a question. Don't you, don't you love it when people do that, parents? We know how that works, right? We, we, we see that happen. You ask a question, and uh, they know that they don't want to answer it, and so they, they maybe uh, divert. Um, not just parents, lawyers too, right? I mean, people do it all the time. But they, they ask a question in return. They say, Rabbi, where are you staying? Now, I, I know that it would be, that, that it is very tempting here to interpret this as them just ducking the question, try, trying to avoid the question, uh, which is exactly what people do when they get really uncomfortable with a question like, what do you seek? But given what we see here, that they end up uh, following Jesus back to where he's staying, and they end up uh, spending the, the whole day with Jesus. I believe that their question is actually more of an indication of the fact that they are all in. They are both feet in, 100% committed to following Jesus. And so they ask him the question, where are you staying? Because they want to know where to find him, where to spend time with him, where to go when they want to learn from him. See, they're not asking Jesus to follow them I think that's what a lot of people these days think, that Jesus follows us, not that we follow Jesus. But no, John and Andrew are basically saying, 
Jesus, wherever you go, uh, that's where we're going to. Wherever you go, we're, we're going to follow you. And so again, this forces us to, to look inside of ourselves, doesn't it? To consider what's in our own hearts. Do you want a Jesus that follows you? Do you want a Jesus who's going to be perfectly fine if you live in sin? Who lets you sin and, and there's no consequence? He just gives you a wink and a smile like, hey, we're good, I covered it. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. That's not the way it works. Or do you want a Jesus that, that looks like you? Do you want a Jesus that thinks like you? Do you want a Jesus that, that has all the same values? Uh, you know, a, a Jesus that would vote conservative Republican straight down the line. That's not who Jesus is. Or do you want a Jesus who is totally different from us? but who promises that he will transform you. And he will use every circumstance in your life to make you more and more and more like him. That's the biblical Jesus. That's the Jesus that we're reading about here. And of course, for us, where do we go when we want to learn about Jesus? We go to the Bible, right? We go to the Word of God. I mean, the, the disciples went to where he was staying, but for us, we have to see that all the authority that Christ had, his word also has, which is why the, uh, John the Apostle has that, that double entendre using the, the word or the phrase the word to refer, to refer not only to Jesus, but also to Scripture. Because the authority is the same. All the authority that Christ has, his word has. So we go to Scripture. Let me use the words found in the fire fellowship statement of faith. Fire is uh, the fellowship that uh, we uh, are, are considering uh, moving forward as a congregation. Uh, they say this in, in their statement of faith. They say, we believe that Almighty God has revealed all that is necessary to life and salvation in the 66 books of Holy Scripture, which are the Word of God. All Scripture was given by inspiration of God, is infallible and inerrant, and is the final arbiter in all disputes. This is the important part. This is the, the, the greatest part, I think, I think. It says, its authority is derived from its author and not from the opinions of men. Its authority is derived from its author and not from the opinions of men. When you see the Scripture in this way, through the same lens that they reflect in their statement of faith, you'll see that everything in your life, every decision that you make in life, every question that you have in life, every complaint you might have, it all falls under the authority of Scripture. All of it. Everything in your life. Because the Bible has the same authority that its author has, and its author is God. Let me give you one more quote before we move on. From, uh, from Founders Ministries, modern English translation of the London Baptist Confession of 1689. They say this about Scripture. They say, To preserve and propagate the truth better, and to establish and comfort the church with greater certainty against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and the world, the Lord put this revelation completely in writing. Therefore, the Holy Scriptures are absolutely necessary. So let me ask you, is that how you see Scripture? Do you see that it has authority over every aspect of your life because God has authority over every aspect of your life? 
Do you seek understanding of it and conformity to it, or do you want it to fit your values and your thoughts? See, for Andrew and John, that seems to be why they want to know where Jesus is staying, so that they could find him and go to him and find him regularly, so that they could follow him as he was worthy of being followed. So I think we can give Andrew and John uh, a little bit of credit here. They're asking a good question. They're committed, it appears, to following Jesus. They're committed to forsaking all other personal interests for the sake of being a disciple of Jesus, for the sake of being Christians and being conformed to his likeness. Again, are you? Because that's what being a Christian is all about. And, and so Jesus says to them, love his response. He says, come and you will see. Once again, isn't that so simple? I mean, they could have spent all day talking about stuff. But no, he just says, come and you'll see. Come and you'll see. If you look down at verse 46, you'll see that on the following day, which we're going to be covering next week, Philip starts following Jesus, and he goes to invite Nathaniel to join him in following Jesus. And Nathaniel says, oh, can, well, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And what does Philip say? Come and see. Come and see. It's like he's picking up on it. So on this day, on day three, uh, Andrew and John, they spend hours in the presence of Jesus. What a great privilege. Hours, all day, in the presence of Jesus. And I think that on this day, both Andrew and John were deeply and profoundly changed because we see the fruit of their devotion immediately in the verses that follow. Let's look, look at verses 40 to 42. We read, One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. One of the things that we see here is that Andrew... Uh, has some, some theological knowledge. Now, it's possible that John the Baptist said more, that he explained what he meant when he said uh, you know, that, that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but we can't be certain. But what we can be certain of is that Andrew has made the connection between Jesus being the Lamb of God and Jesus being the Messiah who is prophesied and promised throughout the Old Testament. See, we, we don't know a lot about Andrew. We don't know... Uh, what his career was up until this point. We, we don't know anything about his family outside of Peter, really, you know, his immediate family outside of Peter. But to say that the very least, while he may have been among the first, or, or um, if not the first disciple, uh, he wasn't one of the more prominent disciples. He's, he's not one of the, the people who speaks up when Jesus says something, not like Peter does, right? Peter's always, he makes sure that he, he's, he's saying, you know, speaking his mind as soon as Jesus asks a question or, or says something, but not Andrew. He's not one of the more prominent voices um, that we have in our Bibles of, of among the disciples. But in the few places where we do learn about Andrew, he is always portrayed every single time as a man who eagerly invited and brought people to Jesus. 
There are actually only three times in the gospel, according to John, that Andrew is mentioned, which doesn't seem like a lot, especially considering that it looks like John the Apostle started out, um, John who wrote this book started out with Andrew. But there are only three times in this entire book that Andrew is mentioned. Here's the first one, where he he goes to find his brother Simon to bring him to Jesus. Uh, When we get to chapter 6, when Jesus wants to feed the 5,000, Andrew is the one who brings the young boy with the two fishes and the five loaves of barley to Jesus. And then in chapter 12, uh, Andrew and and Philip bring a group of Greek uh, people who were headed to the feast to see Jesus. Andrew is always bringing people to Jesus. He always sees himself as a go-between between Jesus and the lost sinner. In this case, he goes and he finds his brother Simon. You can imagine the excitement that he had. He runs to find his brother. And what I love about this, what we should see and understand clearly, is that this witness testimony begins not only with somebody who's close to Andrew, but with his own family, his own flesh and blood, his own brother. See, if evangelism is the result of love for God plus love for neighbor, how much more should it be seen when there's a love for someone who's even closer than a neighbor? You know, there are a lot of parents in in our day and age who don't see themselves as disciplers, who, who, who see their responsibility as just providing for the kids, and they decide that they're going to let their kids, their, their approach to parenting is that they're going to let their kids figure out for themselves which religion to follow. And I want to say this as, as graciously, um, as kindly, and yet as straightforwardly as I possibly can. But aside from murdering their child, either inside or outside of the womb. To leave this decision in your children's hands is the most hateful thing that any parent can do for their kids. Let me ask you this. How many of you let your kids figure out for themselves whether or not they want to play in traffic? Oh, Johnny, you know, go ahead, go on out there. You know, I personally don't do it, but you might have a lot of fun doing it. So go ahead. If, if you want to do it, give it a try. No parent would do that. Why not? Because it would result in, if, if not certain death, certain injury. You, you don't let your kids figure out for themselves if they just want to have nothing but cupcakes at every meal, right? Any parents do that? We need to talk after service if you do. You don't let your kids figure out for themselves if they want to wear clothing in public. You don't let your kids figure out any of these things for themselves. And none of these things are as important as the security and the salvation of their souls. So why would anyone think that it would be wise to let their kids figure out religion for themselves? Why would you leave the most important decision any person anywhere could ever make in their hands without trying to give them some kind of direction? Only the devil himself would come up with an idea so wicked, so devious. If you go into a Christian bookstore, 
warning, right? Red flags, anytime pastor says Christian bookstore, you go in with discernment, but if, if you go in there looking for books on evangelism, you'll find a lot. You know, there, there are quite a few books on evangelism, and, and you'll find that there are different approaches, some of which you might find helpful, some of which you, you might not find helpful. Some will be very biblical. Uh, some may not be so biblical. And if you look at the conferences on evangelism, again, uh, some of the sessions you'll find maybe very helpful, some of them maybe, maybe not so helpful. But what you'll find almost completely overlooked, both in books and in conferences and in uh, talks on evangelism, what you'll find is that what's almost completely overlooked is the fact that the most natural place to start witnessing about Jesus is in the home, is in the home, in the family. As James Montgomery Boyce points out, he says, quote, it is through the home that the great majority of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ come to faith in him, end quote. And that's exactly the way that God designed it to be, that that would be the first and foremost place that people are drawn to the faith. Charles Spurgeon wrote of family worship in Christian homes. He said this, he said, quote, every house should be the house of God. And, where, and there should be a church in every house. And when this is the case, it will be the greatest barrier against priestcraft and the idolatry of holy places. In other words, if you view your primary church, as your, your home as, as a church, it's a guard against your kids going astray. It doesn't guarantee it. There are, there are no guarantees. Ultimately, every kid has to make the decision for themselves. It's between them and the Lord. But... Why would you want to make it more difficult than it needs to be? The family. The home is the most common place, and the family is the most common means through which God draws fallen sinners to himself. And if you study the lives of missionaries, you'll find that this is unquestionably true. If you, if you, if you look at the, the, the stories of, uh, of, of the, the early church in Acts, you'll see that this is true. That when a person goes into a foreign land and, and, and presents the gospel to somebody who's ne- to preach the gospel where it's never been heard, perhaps that missionary will spend years before somebody finally converts. And, and that'll often be their translator or somebody who is uh, very close to them, maybe the person who, who taught them the, the language of the nation that they have become a missionary to. And when that one person converts, the most common thing that you'll see is that other people in that person's family start coming to faith as well. That's why you read about whole households being baptized, because whole households start coming to Christ in Acts. And this is the way that it spreads for generations. Now, maybe you don't have kids, and that's okay. Maybe you're too young to have kids. Maybe you've never wanted kids. That's okay. There's still something to learn here, and that is that evangelism should start with those who are closest to you. Friends, Co-workers, neighbors, anyone whom the Lord has brought into close proximity to you. And it doesn't need to be complicated. You don't need to buy a blimp. You can, but you don't need to buy a blimp. You don't need to make it more complicated. You might make them mad if you buy a blimp. But the ordinary means is to simply bear verbal witness to what you have seen God do through Christ in your own life to those who are closest to you. Now, you might think, okay, but if, if God is all-powerful, uh, 
Why would he need me to say anything if he's going to save someone? I mean, if God is going to save uh, only the elect, if God is going to save whoever he wants to save, uh, why should I leave my comfort zone for the sake of evangelizing? Right? That's actually a heresy. That's a heresy called hyper-Calvinism. See, we realize that the Bible teaches us that God doesn't just ordain who receives salvation, but he also has ordained how they come to salvation. He doesn't just ordain the ends, he also ordains the means to the end. And in his own unsearchable counsel, his own unsearchable wisdom, he has ordained that proclaiming Christ would be the means through which the lost are saved and the elect are brought into peace, union, and fellowship with God. When you consider all the things that make for a healthy church, that grows. You might think, well, it's, it's really important to have a, a, a good pastor or a good preacher or a, a, a solid elder board, people who are, who are really uh, theologically acute, really sharp. Um, maybe you look at, at who's, uh, what denomination are they in. You know, these things are all important to an extent. I don't want to downplay their, their importance. I mean, you see 3,000 people converted on the day of Pentecost when Peter preaches the gospel, right? But as important as it is to have somebody who's maybe a a lesser version of a Peter, there is no substitute for a church having the faithful witness of several Andrews. Those who bring the gospel out to those who are closest to them. Jesus' promise, come and you will see. That's a promise. Come and you will see. It's a promise that remains valid to this very day. It's an offer that still stands. Come to him and you will see. To any and all who want the truth about life, to any and all who want the truth about reality and human existence, if they come to Jesus, they will see. And if they don't, they'll perish. If anyone wants to know the truth about Jesus, he'll show them. He'll show anyone who comes to him in faith. And if they don't, they'll remain dead in their sins. If you look to Christ, believing as you gaze upon Christ that He is the Lamb of God who has taken your personal sin upon Himself, thereby redeeming you by His sovereign grace, you know what will happen? You'll love God. He's God. You you will love Him when when you see that and when you believe that. So, so you, you'll, you'll see His grace. And when you see His grace, you will long for His grace. And when you long for His grace, you will gladly receive and welcome His grace. You will adore the One who shed His blood for you. You will adore the One who took your sin upon Himself and in exchange gave you His perfect righteousness that you could stand before God forgiven, reconciled. And you will love Him for that. And and the longer you think about these things, the, the more you understand these things, the longer you behold Christ, the more you'll believe this to be true and the more you will love Him. And as you love Him more, what'll happen is you will want more deeply and more profoundly to obey Him. And when your love for God is combined with the love that you have for your fellow man, or fellow woman, 
or your children. You'll want them to come and see. You'll want them to see what Jesus has to offer too. You'll want him to take their sins upon himself just as surely as he has taken yours because real love desires the greatest good for another and there is no greater good than that our neighbors would be reconciled to God through faith in Christ. And where will they find Jesus? I mean, we're talking about the real Jesus here, not some imaginary Jesus who follows after you. We're talking about the real Jesus, not one of our, our, of our personal imagination. In his holy, infallible, inerrant word, that's where they'll find him. Same place we do. I mean, witnessing can start with our personal testimony, absolutely. But let's admit that even that can be a little bit subjective. And thus it must ultimately direct people to something objective and unchanging. I don't want somebody to believe in Jesus just because I've got some story that I tell them. I want them to believe, about, you know, to believe in Jesus because the Word of God testifies that they have to if they want to be reconciled to God. Just as we, we go to the Bible to learn about Jesus and to learn what he would in, instruct us to do, we have to proclaim the same message that Scripture proclaims, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, not by our works, not by our deeds, not by how good we are, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The Lamb of God will take away the sin of all who come to him, and that there is no other way there's no other way to be reconciled to God but through Christ. Friends, the, I'll leave you with this. The, the goal of evangelism is not to win an argument. It's simply to bring people to Jesus. See, our, our witness can't save someone, but Jesus can. Our, our witness can't soften a hardened heart, but Jesus can. Our, our witness can't lift the veil that's blinding someone's heart, but Jesus can. Our job is simply to continually seek and follow after Jesus with the right motivations. And to then be faithful and obedient, to tell the world, to tell people around us about Jesus, and to leave the results of our witness, to leave the results of our evangelism in God's hands. So let us not only devote ourselves to coming to the faith, but to also keeping the faith. And not only to keeping the faith, but to understanding that part of keeping the faith is sharing the faith for the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Most gracious God, thank you for Christ Jesus. Thank you that by grace you have drawn us to him. That we would behold him. You lifted the veil from our hearts and allowed us to see him. To see his glory. To see our need for him. Thank you so much, Lord, for sending him to redeem us. For sending Christ to take our sins upon himself that we might be justified in your sight that we might bear Christ's own righteousness in your presence. In the silence of our hearts, Lord, we confess that however much we love you, we love you imperfectly, that we sin, that we fall short, 
that our walk with you is maintained by grace alone, just as when we first came to you was by grace alone. And so we pray, Lord, that you would teach us to turn away from our sin. Forgive us as we confess our sin to you. And renew us, renew our minds as we measure ourselves against your word. We pray, Lord, that you would grant us the grace to witness faithfully. Grant us courage. Grant us wisdom. Grant us an eternal perspective. And grant us the right motivations. Cleanse us of any motivations which are impure, Lord in order that we would be obedient to what Christ has done for us, uh, has instructed us to do, in order that he would be glorified in our lives. We pray for opportunities, Lord, to speak about Christ, and we pray for the boldness to do it, that Christ would be exalted. In his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.